The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm your host, Ray Offenheiser. The first forum on China and Africa Cooperation, or FOCAC, was held in Beijing from November 3rd to 5th, 2006. Hu Jintao, then president of China, and heads of state and delegations from 35 African nations attended this summit. This was a grand affair, a week of African delegations visiting Chinese industries, research facilities, and government institutions, culminating in more formal sessions in the Great Hall of the People, TV networks nightly airing documentaries on African nations. Hotel ballrooms filled every evening with receptions for the delegations. Harmony was the dominant theme, and the city was festooned with massive welcoming messages celebrating Chinese-African relations. As one of the eight measures for future Sino-African relations, President Hu announced the creation of a $6 billion China-Africa Development Fund as the capstone of the event. I happened to be in Beijing at the time and was astonished at what I had witnessed. China literally rolled out the red carpet for their African guests. I cannot imagine that African nations were ever received anywhere in the world with this level of celebration, grandeur, preparation, or hospitality. The event of these two weeks marked the beginning of a new phase of China's now dynamic political, commercial, and development presence across Africa. Much, however, has happened since this major event. Our guest today is someone who can help us shed light on this growing Chinese presence and ambition in Africa today. Dr. Joshua Eisenman is an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. His research focuses on the political economy of China's development and its foreign relations with the United States and the developing world, particularly Africa. He's the author of several books, two of which are forthcoming on China in Africa. Josh, we're delighted to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ray. Maybe to launch into this conversation, I'd like to begin with a simple question and ask you, maybe at a more personal level, as a China scholar, when did you really start focusing on China's growing presence in Africa? What was really going on that caught your attention? What sorts of issues and trends in the China-Africa relationship did you really start to follow closely? Well, I appreciate the question, Ray, and it's great to be here. And I appreciate your your leadership at the Keough School and through Pulte on all issues development-related. You know, my interest in China-Africa actually began in about 2002, 2003. And it, it began great, you know, by coincidence, in fact, when a friend of mine, now a pretty well-known journalist named Josh Rogan at the Washington Post, then, you know, simply a buddy of mine from college, ended up working for a law firm in Philadelphia, working on Alien Tort Claims Act, and got his hand on a bunch of declassified State Department documents demonstrating that the Chinese government had been funding the use of helicopter warships, or maybe not funding, but selling helicopter warships to the Sudanese government. And those were then being used against civilians. And and that information, then we came together and wrote an article about. And that 
sparked a lot of concern because now while um, issues of China and Africa are more or less mainstream, you'll find them in the New York Times, the Washington Post, you didn't see those kinds of things back in 2002, 2003. And so that prompted a pretty big pushback. And I started to ask myself, there might be an interesting future here. So I started to unpack the uh, political economy of the relationship. And through that, I ended up uh, writing a, a few reports when I worked for the uh, U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission soon after I published that article. And then when I left that government, moved on to working in a more scholarly sense, uh, particularly on the China-Africa development and you know economic-political relationship. So that's kind of how it all got started. And it is therefore interesting that we are coming full circle and that Ambassador David Shin and I are now working on a new book on China-Africa political and security relations, because although most of my work has not been on that issue, that is actually how I got interested in the topic. Could you say a little bit more? I mean, you've got the two major works that are about to hit the market, and I think they're quite, I think they're going to be quite important in terms of the kind of political economy perspective you're bringing. Maybe you could just maybe sketch out, maybe at a high level, what are the sort of themes that you're going to be exploring, you know, your China and Africa piece, and maybe as well as in your one that's dealing more specifically with security questions. Well, yeah. So the the new book that's coming out, we're going to do a, a, a launch on, on November 12th in Chinese, is a translated version, updated translated version of China, Africa, Century of Engagement, originally published in, in 2012 by uh, the University of Pennsylvania Press. And that was a six-year project that I engaged with, with the Chinese University of Hong Kong Press, which is a phenomenal press. And we have a uncensored uh, translation and at the highest quality. Uh, Professor Wang uh, Duanyong at uh, Shanghai International Studies University gets all the credit, did a great job in the translation. And, you know, we're super proud of the book because it communicates between scholars in the West, in the United States and in China. And we've got far too little of that kind of communication. A lot of ships passing in the night, a lot of discussions held in Beijing that are just simply not held in Washington or or in South Bend and vice versa. And so this book was really an effort to put out a top quality uncensored book that speaks directly to the Chinese audience um, so that we can increase and expand this conversation. And then the second book or the the second book I'm doing with Ambassador David Shin on China-Africa is looking specifically at the political and security relationship, which is this is going to be a a complete covering of the waterfront. We're going to look at the party-to-party relationship. We're going to look at the foreign-focused propaganda work, which no is not soft power. And that's a big misnomer that I think has gotten out there that needs to be corrected. And we're going to get into a variety of other issues with regard to Chinese military sales, as well as the protection of Chinese citizens in Africa. We're going to be getting into Huawei and the sales of technology and equipment. We're going to get into espionage to some degree. We're going to be talking about a lot of issues. But the thing is that the the, the, the China-Africa economic relationship, which has gained so much attention, has now been, I think, addressed quite thoroughly. And so the question is, where is there analysis that is new and is fresh and is expanding? Because the China-Africa political and security relationship is really expanding quite rapidly. And so this is, I think, a new and important area for us to look at. And so we're excited to do it. Great. Well, thank you, Shosh. Let me, let me step back a bit and maybe acknowledge that China as the PRC has had a developing presence in Africa probably since the early 1950s post-revolution. The China-Africa Summit, I think I described in my opening remarks, was really one watershed moment advancing China as a development actor, but I suspect it wasn't really the first. If we think about origins here, when did China really step up funding and presence economically and politically in the continent? 
Well, there's been some ebbs and flows with regard to China's engagement with Africa. And, you know, the initial engagement can be really traced back to the China-Egypt relationship, which was one of China's first bilateral relationships after the founding of the PRC in the 1950s, I believe 1953, if I'm not mistaken. And this preceded the Bandung Conference, this historic conference where you've got, you know, Nehru and you've got Zhou Enlai and you've got the leaders of these developing countries coming together in Indonesia to put forward in a development agenda and a political agenda at a time when the Cold War is really getting started. And so China then begins to, through its relationship primarily with Cairo, using as a conduit into expanding its relations with African political entities throughout the continent. This goes on throughout the 60s, such that when Zhou Enlai shows up in 1963 for his famous tour of Africa, he is talking to people who are pretty well acquainted with the PRC at that point. Um, and that is through an extensive effort undertaken by the Communist Party and its front groups to begin political and security exchanges with these countries to provide rhetorical support for revolutions, particularly anti-colonial revolutions. And this evolves, and I would say is very closely related to China's domestic politics, such that when the Cultural Revolution begins in earnest, you have all but one Chinese ambassador to an African state recalled. And of course that ambassador was the ambassador to Egypt who remained a bulwark on the continent. But the re-education and the deployment of Maoist politically oriented cadre onto the continent during the Cultural Revolution, a kind of Maoist political relationship, actually had a, quite a bit of negative effects on China's relations in the continent, leading to several diplomats being removed. But then in the 1970s, we see yet another shift, perhaps a return to pragmatism and China cooperating with the United States against the Soviet Union and the Cubans in Angola and a variety of other more pragmatic engagements on the security and political front. Then during the 80s, you see China moving under Deng Xiaoping to essentially focus more attention in its close periphery, paying less attention to Africa. But then after 1989, African countries were among the first to reestablish good relations with China and to visit Beijing after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And so we have this engagement that then re-begins, re-cultivates in the 90s, and then ebbs and flows throughout the 90s. But then, as you rightfully point out with FOCAC, beginning in 2000, under Jiang Zemin, you have a desire to kind of crystallize the relationship and set the agenda. And then FOCAC becomes this essential node in the relationship going forward. And so it begins primarily on the economic front, and you've got just a heck of a lot of economic cooperation. But when you look at the documents associated with FOCAC, they are increasingly political in nature and in do, indeed do include some security-related language as well. So we see an, a kind of evolution of FOCAC from what had been almost an entirely economic-focused entity into an entity that is taking on more security and political engagements to kind of overlay and supplement the bilateral relations that China has with nearly all countries on the continent, except for Eswatini. I think if we look today in terms of what the public is most aware of, it's probably the Belt and Road Initiative, which actually is not just Africa, but it spans across sort of Central Asia and South Asia and, and all the way to the African continent and beyond. I think as some folks are looking at that today, China's often criticized for its, I guess one could say, aggressive presence in Africa and elsewhere through the Belt and Road Initiative. But um, I might just sort of, maybe in the interest of being fair, ask, is there a positive side about this whole process of Chinese expansion and Chinese presence and Chinese investment? Is there a positive side that we're perhaps ignoring? 
And are there particular initiatives or major projects of China in Africa that you follow closely and stand out as perhaps emblematic of the best that China has to offer Africa? Well, yeah, you're right, certainly, Ray, that there is a, a political veneer that often gets cast on China-Africa relations, such that you have some folks out there saying that they're going to set the record straight and clarify. But the truth is that it's complicated and it's hard to clarify because you've got 50 plus nations engaged with China. And, and it's how, how do you generalize? I mean, Africa is a diverse place. I don't have to tell you and the listeners that, but there is a lot of generalization going on. I think it's important to, to kind of step back and understand that the way that China views development is fundamentally different. We often talk about the need for peace and security to lead to development. And China often talks about the opposite, the causal arrow going in the other direction, that when you have development and through development, you thus have peace and security. And what do they mean by development? Then? What they mean is an increase of the capital labor ratio. It is, it is almost textbook economics here, right? So when you've got more capital and less labor, you have development. And that kind of analysis leads them to engage in a variety of different capital enhancing policies and measures. And it is through this engagement that they believe will then lead to peace and security. And so for China, the road to peace and security is through development. And I often think that in the, in the, in the West, we hear it the opposite way around. But I would also stress that, especially with regard to the United States, there's a kind of important differences here. China does the Belt and Road, but in reality, the Belt and Road in many regards began in Africa a decade before. It wasn't called the Belt and Road, but the kind of debt for infrastructure backed by, you know, whether it be oil or or, or some kind of natural resource, that kind of structure had been in existence in Africa. They, had a, they were using it in Angola. Ambassador Shin and I were, were talking to them in 2007 about it. So it's been in existence pre-Xi Jinping. And I would say that the Belt and Road is really an expansion of what China had been doing in Africa to the rest of the developing world. And that's a pretty good way to, to think of it. It's also important to understand the difference, and I think this gets a lot less attention than it should, between debt and equity. Both are financed, but they have very different implications. As anyone can tell you, the first person to get paid is debt. Equity is the last because equity is a part owner. And so there's been a lot of discussion of debt traps and other things. I find a lot of that discussion just to miss the mark and be not necessarily relevant or important. But China has done a variety of things that are helpful in Africa in terms of providing finance flows to support a variety of infrastructure throughout uh, around the continent. But we have to almost look at this on a case-by-case basis to know whether or not those projects have been helpful or not. And it's, it, you know, the big ones and the big failures and the ones that are costly or facing serious debt questions often get a lot of media attention. But it's the kind of smaller projects, which China, I think, will be engaged in more and more going forward, that often have a you know a lot of local impact but we can't see it's difficult i think for us as analysts to give a kind of scorecard if you will for china's economic engagement in africa because in a lot of ways the the, the test isn't over yet we'll see only in a you know maybe a decade how many white elephants there are and how many useful projects there are but the you know the important thing i would i would just remind listeners is that a lot of the things we thought were going on a year ago it's hard to note it's hard to 
conduct our analysis today because of COVID-19. The travel limitations and the impacts on the economies of these countries are really uncertain at this time. So whether or not China had a, to get circle back to your question, had a really positive impact on the development in these countries, to some degree, there's an alternate reality, a kind of what if COVID-19 never happened? And then there's an actual reality. And it's going to be hard, I think, to judge the quality of the due diligence that Chinese banks did on some of these loans based on the fact that they could never have predicted the impacts of COVID-19. So hard to really be fair with them in that sense. But what I can tell you is that there is a lot of hand-wringing in Beijing about what to do about a lot of the finance that has gone out. And there's a lot more concern about the finance that potentially would go out going forward. Thanks, Josh. Maybe if we stay with your really interesting comments about guiding principles, I I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, unlike other donors, I think it's fair to say the EU and the US, you know, most of their, you know, their aid is, you know, well aligned with strategic foreign policy and business interests. And and China's obviously is as well, although it's probably made, you might also say, and I think here, some of your examples in the previous comment would illustrate this, that there are market differences in terms of guiding principles, financing, on the ground approach, physical presence and strategic objectives. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about differences in principles and approach and presence and as compared to sort of the traditional Western donors, kind of within that frame of peace and security equals development versus development will lead to peace and security. I think that was a nice framing. Well, I think that, especially when we look at the United States, Ray, the most important thing to remember is the priorities. Now, Africa is not a priority. And when it has been a priority, and I would suggest folks look at Bolton's comments a couple of years ago, it's in the context of major power relations. And therefore, it kind of undermines, I think, the larger message trying to be delivered. So for the United States, and especially under the Trump administration, Africa is not a priority. It's below the priority list. And, And when Ambassador Shin and I were doing our research in 2018, the president's comments about shithole countries were just on the lips of everybody. And it was something where it kind of, it was just a blip on our news radar, but it, but it really, it resonated. And, and when you take that and you juxtapose it with the fact that every year, the very first trip that the Chinese foreign minister makes every year is to Africa. And you look at the amount of delegations going from Africa to China. You look at the way they're hosted. You look at the way China is hosting people at the commiserate level of rank. You can get a sense here that the development strategy is really only a part of what's going on here, right? That that there is a concern about equal treatment. There's a concern about prioritization. There's a concern about just simple respect. And on all those measures, China's kicking the U.S. butt all around the room. And so there, you know, before we even get into a strategy issue, I think we have to understand that China's approach is very much to make Africa feel intentionally that it's getting the attention that it thinks it deserves and to treat at least titularly African, small African countries at a better or at a, at a greater level than, than they would receive in the U.S. And I'm not going to speak to the Europeans because I'm not as under, uh, I don't understand that as well. But I think that's really important just as a kind of basic understanding of the way this interaction takes place. And and the reason it's important is because we do have some social science on this, which suggests that when negotiations take place under conditions of friendliness, that 
asymmetry can be abated, or at least the smaller side does not feel the weight of asymmetry, which almost gives the larger side a more opportunity to deploy it without consequence. And so it's important to understand that there is an objective here. In terms of China's priorities, a lot of that also has to do with the fact that China's system is different than ours in the, we have, I would say, a more diversified group of actors working on the continent, a lot of NGOs engaged, whereas China has a more top-down, more centrally directed approach, certainly under Xi Jinping. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. There are millions of Chinese living in Africa who are doing business having nothing to do with the Chinese government. But the largest players are all government-related and government-tied, and and the biggest business folks are, are party members. And so there's just a level of coordination that's going on there that doesn't actually, it's just completely different than the way the U.S. works. And let me give you a very clear example that hits home, right? When China is looking to give scholarships to African students, which it does quite a lot of, and when you talk about things that China is doing that's good, I would say that the scholarships it's providing to African students are, are on the list for sure. It does so often through its embassies, that the embassies will seek out the right students or find a way to promote that program. However, in the United States, I have found that most scholarships for Africans, which are available, and and any African listeners, I want to say there are a lot of scholarships. I mean, here at Notre Dame, we would just love to see your applications at the Keogh School. But those are not something that the U.S. Embassy is going to be uh, handing out flyers on. That's something that you're going to have to do a bit of digging, get on the website and find yourself. And then you apply. And when you apply, then you'll be considered. So the U.S. system in this way is is more disaggregated and it allows for more points of penetration from from African actors. But at the same time, it also it means that you're going to have to take more initiative on the African side in order to kind of understand what's going on because of the lack of prioritization that the U.S. places on Africa and African students. So I would say that there is actually a a lot of opportunities for African students to come and study in the United States, but it's incumbent on them to take the initiative to find them. Whereas in China's case, and this again is just to expand to the larger engagement is more centrally driven and then and more reliant on embassies, embassy personnel. And in the economic sense, it's exactly the same. China has far more government personnel engaged in promoting Chinese businesses and finance on the continent than the U.S. has. It's orders of magnitude larger. So, Josh, you know, it's interesting reflecting a little bit as you're talking back on that um, that FOCAC meeting that I, I referenced in the in the opening the dominant theme there, if you were just to sort of observe what was going on in all the imagery and all of the videos on television, the documentary films in the evenings and the receptions and the remarks at the receptions and the press that you would see was all about harmony in the relationship. The basis, it was all of, you know going to be harmonious. And harmonious, I think, in some sense, was a a word that signaled non-intervention in terms of sort of core sovereignty of African nations that we're going to be a friendly investor, friendly, almost disinterested investor in the continent, and therefore a good, if I can put it this way, development partner with you in all respects. But I think maybe if we sort of look at where things are today, I think to many recipient countries, China's development system can appear quite complex, precisely because of the, even while it's top down, there are still quite a number of of government agencies, state-owned enterprises, private enterprises, that in some sense are playing different kinds of roles, all of which can seem somewhat opaque, I think, to the outsider. And this is at a time when uh, within the broader development community, there's a whole 
emphasis on greater levels of transparency with recipient governments such that the aid can be planned for in a more, as you might say, more orderly way that's in line with the priorities of the country. What would you say about the opacity or or transparency of, of Chinese intent and Chinese strategic goals uh, vis-a-vis harmony and non-intervention? That's great question, uh, Ray. And let me let me take the harmony part first and then the opacity part second, which I think feeds nicely. So the concept of harmony in the Chinese context is dependent on the hierarchy, and this is the proper hierarchy, being respected. And that when hierarchy is respected, and, and this goes back to Confucian ideas about relationships and, and how relationships ought to work. When hierarchy is respected, then harmony can exist. So, for example, if uh, Gabon believes that it is you know, going to engage China as an equal, then, then, then it's highly unlikely the relationship would be harmonious because China is clearly hierarchically ought to be higher from the from Beijing's perspective. Now, this runs up against kind of Westphalian ideas of the equality of nations, et cetera. But this traditional idea of, of harmony depends on the acceptance of hierarchy. And so if we take this forward and we look at FOCAC, FOCAC is about as unequal an organization as one could imagine. It was created by China. It was funded and is funded almost entirely by China. And it alternates its hosting every three years between China and an African country, such that most African countries may never hold a FOCAC conference. And this gives what political scientists call agenda-setting power to China. You're able to create what Richard Solomon called gratitude, awe, and helplessness in amongst your the folks that you're hosting, which are, find themselves, uh, basically, you control the meeting schedule, you control the buses, the hotels are all state-owned. So this is a very important way in which hierarchy is basically demonstrated, that the China's benevolence as the superior party is, is demonstrated. And, and this kind of can be traced back to the uh, the tributary state system, not in terms of the behavior per se, but in the outcomes and in the kind of objectives of ensuring that this kind of inc- this hierarchical engagement structure then leads to a harmonious set of relationships. And so the term harmony then cannot be understood in a Chinese context without the word hierarchy and is then is thus linked to the nature of the FOCAC summit. Now, in terms of the opacity, when I, when I teach my students about China, I think I always begin with one thing that I think is essential. The Communist Party of China that rules China wants to continue to rule China, and that's their primary objective. That's a political objective, and the CPC is a political organization. So putting this very clearly together, China may have economic and military and political means, but its ends are always political. And when it comes to the CPC, from its very inception, it has existed in a state of opacity. This began because it was a resistance movement against the government of China, the then KMT, which was rapturous. And so the opacity was a kind of fact of life if you wanted to exist and not have the KMT come and kick down your door. But this opacity within the Chinese party state has existed and persisted up until today. And it's a kind of fundamental nature of their system. And from a social science perspective, what it does for these small states is to make it very hard to find points of penetration. 
Whereas the U.S. system, for instance, would offer you the opportunity to hire lobbyists, the opportunity to fund think tank research, whether that be good or bad, but you, you could fund it, the opportunity to go to Washington and freely engage with all types of interlocutors and actors across the political spectrum who either support or, or not support, hiring lawyers, hiring lobbyists, going to the Hill, going to the, the DOD, maybe making some arms purchase from Raytheon. I mean, there are so many opportunities and points of penetration within the U.S. liberal democratic system. But within China, these points of penetration simply don't exist or are much more opaque, as you say. And so when you go to China as a as a visitor, you do so uh, under the invitation of an official host. And often that host is also arranging your schedule. So your ability to interact with folks is very limited to your uh, ability to have your host uh, kind of make those meetings for you. It's not as if you can work the phones per se, unless you've got an established set of relationships. And in the Xi Jinping era, I would say even those are more difficult to pull on without the official uh, engagement. So circling back then to opacity, the nature of this kind of party state makes it extremely difficult for the United States and larger, more well-resourced actors to understand what's going on inside of China at the highest levels, let alone these smaller states, which are much less well-resourced. And that's perhaps on purpose. And, and, and just to kind of step back in the history of the opium war, China had a time when, it, when foreigners were interfering in its internal affairs during the opium war, during the Qing dynasty, and that, that kind of bitter taste has been taught to every Chinese uh, child and is well ingrained. So the idea of non-interference in internal affairs is uh, part of the reason why opacity is considered an asset of the Chinese state, not a problem for them. So um, maybe you're staying a minute with you know, China as sort of a, a member of the international community, particularly the multilateral community. I, I thought it might be interesting to explore from an aid perspective that um, you know, China, along with other major aid agencies, frequently um, participates in a variety of different kind of international summits on all sorts of topics. Paris Climate Treaty, they had a very strong presence there, for example. But they also participated in the cycle of ministerial summits on aid effectiveness uh, that went on over a number of years. I think there were maybe six or seven unique meetings leading to what was referred to as the Busan Agreement on the Principles of Effective Aid Delivery. And in that particular case, you know, I suppose you might say the major principles that were agreed on in terms of how aid should be delivered to recipient states put a strong emphasis on national ownership. The idea that you're kind of building institutional capacity and that you're building, in some sense, you're working yourself out of a job um, as, you know, as the kind of the, uh, and, and you're also coordinating we, uh, well with other donors so that we're not each, you know, as a donor, having our own programs disconnected with and strategically um, ignoring the, um, the the interests of the state recipient or and or your fellow donors, um, does the Chinese government really give much credence when it participates in these events to these kinds of these kinds of aid effectiveness debates about practice or coordination or national ownership, or does it merely attend such summits and and assume that you know it's going to proceed as it has been and these are interesting principles but maybe not relevant to their approach? Well, let us put it this way. More the latter. You know, there is this group of folks in Beijing whose job it is to attend these things, who speak excellent British English or American English, and who are great at espousing. They'll show up in the suit and they, you know, I mean, they play the part, right? And they're, they're there and they're engaged. And, and one could be forgiven for thinking that it's, you know, a very serious and robust engagement. But oftentimes, 
the practice on the ground, as you, I think, know, is very different. And so China has is not a member of the OECD, not a member of the DAC, does not live by those rules, has its own set of rules that it plays by. And those set of rules are pretty opaque, as you said before, and, and we don't necessarily know a lot. I'm not the foremost expert on this issue, but what I can tell you is that there is not much coordination that I know. Now, there, this doesn't mean that there aren't some ways that there is coordination. And let me give you an example. I, I know that, for example, in, in Liberia, and for those more interested in this, Jude Moore, uh, the former public works minister of Liberia, is going to be speaking at a, an event next month hosted by Notre Dame, that they've, been, they've used other foreign countries' firms to monitor the infrastructure work of Chinese firms. But that is a decision taken in Liberia and by the Liberian authorities. It, has, it was not taken by China. Yeah, we do see some joint investment, say oil in Sudan with India and Malaysia. But I, I think on the development front, China tends to go its own road because it tends to view development in terms of this capital labor ratio. But perhaps most importantly, China's foreign policy in Africa is largely driven by domestic politics and the needs of its state-owned enterprises and its desire to gain higher returns for the trillions of dollars it's got sitting U.S. dollars. So its objectives are not always development for that particular country. Oftentimes, its primary objective is making sure that its state-owned enterprises are working, that they've got projects to build, to deploy their capital, their human and their physical capital in ways that are productive. You know, the U.S. doesn't have this, right? We don't have infrastructure firms running all over Africa building things for good or bad, right? I'm not saying that's good, but but when you've got the kind of, you know, the number of engineers and the number and the amount of capacity China has, deploying that capacity becomes a very high priority of the state or you're going to have more unemployment and you're going to have essentially wasted capacity. So part of the Belt and Road Initiative is the deployment of excess financial capital that was only earning, you know, T-bill interest was not considered very exciting. So they wanted to, to get higher returns to that capital. And they wanted to make sure that all of the, the, the human and then the physical capital that they'd accumulated in their firms was, was being deployed around the world. And all of that is not going to be the objective of the OECD or the DAC or the G20 or, you know, the, those are not development objectives for Africa. Those are development objectives for China. And so it makes it very difficult to engage in a robust cooperation when your primary objectives are fundamentally different, not at odds per se. They may be sometimes, but not, at, at, not necessarily at odds, but they're just different than the partners. Well, let's play this out a little bit further in terms of you know, China, how China engages in the multilateral system from its vantage point and, and help us interpret different things we may have observed over time. And I want to use two cases maybe to make the point. One is the World Summit in 2015 that established the Sustainable Development Goals. Obviously, broader UN participation, Ban Ki-moon brought all the nations of the world together, and there was this unprecedented agreement on trying to achieve these you know, 17 Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. And China was in a part of that. I mean, I take your point about OECD, but they are on the Security Council and a part of the UN. How do we understand that, you know, their participation in that and what any endorsement of that might mean. And then by contrast, their participation in the Paris Climate Summit, which was, you know, another event where they did have a very significant presence. They have, you know, they did sign on to the agreement. There was that important moment where Obama was in China before the 
the ASEAN summit in Australia when there was a big announcement about China-U.S. breakthrough in, in, on, on some of the, the thornier issues around the Paris Climate Agreement. And then China came on board, you know, ultimately in the Paris, in the final days of the Paris Accord. How do you how do you see those, you know, from within the kind of framework you've just you just uh, presented? And are, are there any differences or is it or are they the same? Well, Ray, I mean, I wish I had good news for you here, but I think that you don't have to go far to find a variety of different multilateral treaties and agreements that China has signed but doesn't live by. And, you know, look no further than the unclose agreement in the South China Sea, which it is a party to but doesn't enforce and, in fact, is in violation of. Look no further than the the human rights provisions at the UN that China has uh, signed, but but now they've got a, a million Uyghurs in in cages in Xinjiang, right? And and then you've got, and plus the rest of, I mean, it's not to say the Han Chinese people don't have human rights violations, right? And then the Paris Climate Accord, come on, Ray, I, I got a bridge I want to sell you in Brooklyn. Forget about it. This, this is not going to be enforced in any meaningful way. And let me give you an example. You know, I had one student of mine, Chinese student who worked prior to coming to, to be my student, worked as a, a research assistant with a prominent Chinese academic at a very, at a coal producing province. And, you know, he had her working on collecting data on coal emissions. So she went to a, a variety of the top 10 coal producers, you know, emissions producers in the province, and she got their numbers, internal numbers for their own emissions. And she put those numbers together and found just the top 10 polluters were polluting twice as much as the province had reported to the center. And of course, what do you think happened to that data? It was buried. It never came out, right? The, the, the study was canned, right? So I don't know. If you believe the data that's coming out, like I said, I've got a, br- a bridge to sell you. So I, I don't know. I find a lot of this stuff to be pretty disingenuous. I would refer to Xi Jinping's speech at the, at the Davos summit about how China's opening its markets. And then look, look to the response from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce about their real ability to gain market access. You know, we saw similar comments at the U.N. I mean, I, a lot of this is just talk. They're, they're really good at the foreign-focused propaganda work, which is what I would call this. And what is just shocking to me is the willingness of foreigners to continue to believe it and to buy onto it. And there needs to be, at some point, a willingness to actually kind of hold feet to the fire here and simply saying the right words. I mean, the U.S. is replete with saying all the wrong words, but doing anyway. So, for example, we did not sign the Unclose Agreement, Law of the Sea, but we live by it. So I think that there's a lot of kind of talk, a lot of agreement signing. But, you know, when we look, for example, at the MOUs that China signed, we find that only about 10% of the MOUs are actually ever come to fruition in terms of a project. And then we haven't even gotten into whether the projects are good or bad. But the point is, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of paper. But, you know, I think we all need to be very skeptical about whether or not there is actual enforcement on the ground, because we have no way zero way to really find out if enforcement is happening. And I think this is, you know, fundamentally, if, if we continue to be led down the primrose path, we shouldn't be surprised where we end up. So I want to stay with the bridge in Brooklyn for one more minute. And on the, I, I offered you those two examples because I, for, for a kind of peculiar reason, one was on the SDGs, I sort of felt if I were China, I could actually in good conscience say we, we're meeting many of those goals at home. And so it's in our national interest as the party and as, you know, a government that's worked a lot on economic and social 
sort of improvement of our population to sort of, we can actually honestly say we're making improvements. We've lifted, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. So therefore we can sign on this though. It's kind of in line with our overall objectives. On the Paris one, you know, it's interesting. I spent a lot of time on the climate issues uh, leading up to Paris and in the environmental community globally, there's this sense that China has seen, come to see the carbon issue and the climate issue as both a threat to stability at home in terms of toxic air and increased, you know, and diminished ability of, of Chinese citizens to live well in China under the conditions they, they currently have, and that that has to be addressed. So there's political pressure. And then secondly, that there's an economic opportunity to be the, in some sense, the workshop for renewable energy for the world. And that while America sleeps, that's an opportunity we're going to play up. And therefore we can be, you know, we can be the the industrial leader driving the Paris Agreement and the technology that the world will need to, to achieve it. It aligns well with the goals in the way I think you've described. So I, I wonder if you, if there's any sort of sense that that kind of logic plays out at all. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the development goals, I mean, China's all about development, right? It, it's been all about development since 1949. And so there is nothing antithetical at all to its mission. This is the mission of the party, which has been on a mission to develop China to try to push forward development. You know, that's its kind of calling card. But remember, it it is a capital labor ratio type of development. It's a very economic kind of definition of development. In terms of the the Paris Accord, and and again, I want to say that I'm not foremost, you know, leader on, on green tech or on climate change issues. But in 2008 and 2009, I put together a dialogue between Chinese official interlocutors and the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. And we had meetings in New York and we had meetings in Beijing. And, you know, this was you know over a decade ago and we were discussing climate change. That was the issue. And we were talking about and, and we came up with a joint agreement. And that joint agreement then, I would say, influenced the negotiation that then was going on between the Obama administration and China and the document they put out. But it's hard to say that we've seen much progress since 2009. And so I think China talks a good game on this, that you're entirely correct that it wants to be seen as the leader in green tech, whether that be windmills or solar panels you know, I visited a factory in Jiangsu, China a few years ago, a solar panel factory. They had an entire field of these things, and they were telling us about capacity. And I just said, well, what, what is your actual generation? You know, your generation capacity is X. So what is the Y, right? What is what you're actually doing? And the guy said, well, actually, we're only at a, you know, under 10%. And I said, why? Well, one, because the pollution of the sky means we don't generate much. And two, because pollution also means our, our solar panels are covered in uh, our grime. And, and so they generate much less. So I said, well, why don't you clean them? And he said, because water is much more expensive than whatever we would make from generating the electricity, which takes us to the crescendo point I want to make, which is that when Wen Jiabao, the former premier of China, was asked what China's most important environmental issue was, he said water. And I agree with him. So while China may step out and it may talk a lot about climate change, the reality is that the issues within China are really driven by the overabundance or scarcity of water. We saw this in terms of the Three Gorges Dam, or the not, not the flooding of the dam, but the flooding of the Yangtze River, which caused billions of dollars in damage in China, the droughts, the sandstorms, the rain, the effects of climate change 
are, are more impactful, I would say, in terms of China's water problems. And so when you, as the Chinese leadership, are looking at your environmental problems, I would go refer everyone back to Elizabeth Economy's old book, The River Runs Black. And I would say that we would be wrong to consider that air pollution is their primary objective, that water pollution is higher on the agenda, and that those issues are primarily domestic, not international. Although, of course, water flows across borders, don't get me wrong. China's a big country, and it, it considers most of its water, like its groundwater issues. Beijing is sinking as a city. That's an impending issue and crisis that China has to deal with, that even climate change, which it has a limited impact on, you know, is, I would argue, a higher priority. I'm going to change back, maybe back to sort of, again, China and Africa again, but the futurist Parag Khanna, whose work focuses on global geopolitics, he, he posits that in today's multipolar world, middle and lower income nations have this unique opportunity. They could actually pick between three dominant economic models, U.S. capitalism, EU social democracy, and Chinese authoritarian state-led development, as you characterized it. And, and they can, if they're actually smart or clever, they could possibly play these power centers off against one another to their best interests. I wonder how well you think African nations are doing at capitalizing on global multipolarity in their relations with China. Are they, are they able at all to balance relations among these different models, trading one form of dependence for another? Or on the flip side, to what extent is China actively trying to export its model of authoritarian state-led development through its aid programs and in some sense trying to kind of limit those options? Well, let me take this maybe from the Chinese perspective. And the Chinese concept of multipolarity is very influential and important. And you can think of the concept of the BRICS, which China basically took and ran with as kind of heart of this idea. And you can consider it, the, the, the idea is more or less like this, that the U.S. is a hyperpower and that the way you constrain a hyperpower is to build up various nodes of power and prosperity and interest, which then can exercise, constraint, and make the international system more balanced. And so through multipolarity, Beijing believes, it can a kind of counterbalance against U.S. unilateral hegemony from their perspective. The other part of multipolarity is what the Chinese call democratization in international relations, which could be considered the Gulliver strategy, which is particularly interesting and important for Africa, because what it suggests is a kind of a controlling of the norms within the international system using large numbers of smaller powers, especially you know, African and other developing states. And in that way, the U.S. is constrained normatively from engaging in unilateral behavior. Now, we might honestly say that with this norm-breaking administration, does any control of norms matter to the Trump administration? It's a good question. But when this strategy was devised, you know, Donald Trump was not president. And I think the idea is that if he, depending on the results of the election, the strategy may or may not be effective going forward. And so the idea then is that multipolarity is about constraining U.S. international ability to, to behave unilaterally. Now, from the perspective that you have laid out, these smaller countries would then have different opportunities to select kind of from different smorgasbords, if you will, of political systems and, and construct something that is befitting themselves in their national conditions. Now, there's a few points here. One, yeah, there is leverage to be gained to some degree by, like I said, in Liberia, using one country's firms to check another country's firms. There may be some leverage there. But the these systems are not necessarily interchangeable. You can't just 
take parts of China's national socialist system and glom it onto European leftist socialist systems or America's presidential system and just expect it to work. You, you may well end up with a kind of Frankenstein that doesn't work very well at all. And so I'm not sure that you can just go in and pick and attach as you will. And, and, and one of the reasons is because the Chinese system is a fundamentally different system. It's a party state. And I also think it's important that we don't create terms in order to explain China. We, we have seen this before, okay? We have seen ultra-rightist nationalism, okay? We've seen national socialism in numerous cultural and national contexts, okay? Germans do not have some kind of uh, purview over national socialism. So you have German national socialism. You have Italian national socialism called fascism. You have Ba'athism in Syria and in Iraq, and that is a kind of Middle East national socialism. You had national socialism in Japan under the emperor and the uh, system that existed prior, you know, during World War II. And you had Chiang Kai-shek in China calling himself the Generalissimo and having a, quite a lot of affection for Italian fascism. And so it's important to understand that China and the world have a history of this and that this is simply the Chinese iteration of national socialism. The Chinese haven't recreated or reinvented anything. Maybe they have made the most perfect national socialist system the world has seen so far, but they haven't created something new. There are almost no elements that we can point to in China that are just strikingly brand new. They're a conglomeration of different experiences that other nations and societies have experienced around the world. And so when China then trains African diplomats, trains African civil society, trains African think tanks, trains African academics, trains African journalists. What it's teaching them implicitly is a party state model that the party dominates. And so, you know, there is within these kind of human capital development, there is inherently a desire to help folks to understand the value of the Chinese approach. Now, there is an important contradiction here. By definition, national socialism is national. It, it, it reflects the national structure and will of the society to which it attaches. And that is why Italian national socialism looks very different than Ba'athism. You know, there are similarities, certain things we can point to but that are similar, but there are differences. And so elements of the, of the Chinese approach, the Chinese political approach today may be attractive, but other elements are simply inappropriate. And I think the Chinese side understands that. But unfortunately, the desire to gain external legitimacy for Xi Jinping thought and external legitimacy for the party state in China has led it to try to produce books and distribute them and, and move towards a promulgation of its ideology, which actually we haven't seen since, ironically, somewhat the Maoist era. But this is not workers of the world unite. Right. This is not about coming together to uh, oppose rightism in the world, as Mao did. This is a saying that we have a certain kind of national objectives to achieve, and this is how we do it. And we're going to teach you how to achieve your national objectives by using a similar type of political system. And I think it's important to draw this distinction, because while the Communist Party of China may, China may stand under a hammer and sickle, it no longer makes communism any more than Kodak makes film. I want to come back maybe just to kind of Africa's economic future in light of sort of the the, the Chinese presence and investment. 
I know you're well aware that, you know, Africa went through an enormous debt crisis in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, and there was a whole Jubilee campaign and the highly indebted poor countries debt relief initiative. And I now I sort of find as I'm reading literature coming out of Africa, actually, particularly amusingly, commentators in the region and beyond are raising questions as to whether China may be becoming the new African loan shark. And, you know, you see that kind of language in some of the kind of media in the region. And perhaps a greater concern of what's underlying some of this kind of narrative is this question of whether China may be laying, maybe deliberately or non-intentionally, the groundwork for another regional debt crisis. I wonder, you know, particularly how you're seeing this proliferation of Chinese finance projects and particularly the loan terms under which they're given. And what I mean by that in terms of the, the credit terms is the case of, in, in, some, in some cases, of a loan default, China it is said, at least, that China will become the owner of a port facility or a national airport in a capital city. And I guess so some of this critique has to come, you know, comes down to, does this make sense? Should China be, you know, in some sense, buying the infrastructure that it's building by the, the terms under which the debt is being drawn up? You know, and are these claims fair and accurate? I mean, they send, tend to be ones that are coming out of the West as a bit of a, a way of critiquing the Chinese presence. But are they, are they in fact, accurate as far as you know? Because they do have long-term economic implications, if that's if that, if that is true. Well, yeah, Ray, it's a great question. It's very timely. So there is, I think, a desire in China to gain the benefits of lending out the money and then get the money back, right? So to to have their cake and eat it too. That they, they you know, these are the kind of fruits of the labor of the Chinese nation. They don't want to lend them out and not see them. Again, right? The the Qing Dynasty almost went broke, giving away its tributary payments, right? So, so this is not a tributary state because there is a there is a repayment, and and so there is a desire then to make sure that there was due diligence done on these projects. At the same time, there was a political instructions from above to get the Belt and Road rolling and to get the money out the door. And so you have this kind of contradiction where you've got, you know, people saying, do your due diligence, but at the same time, you've got a political directive to get the projects out the door. And so this kind of connected lending, when it does, when it happened in China, led to huge amounts of of non-performing loans. And so, and I said this at the time, and, uh, you know, I wrote it at the time, we shouldn't expect that a highly politicized lending process would do any better externally focused. In fact, given the risks that occur in every single one of these countries, which are unique and that China is ill-suited to understand, we should expect default ratios to be higher. And, you know, when I was doing interviews with Ambassador Xi in 2018, we went to the China Development Fund, which is given $10 billion from the China Development Bank to look for equity investments in Africa. They told us that no matter how they do their due diligence, they would always end up with about 50% non-performing. And so that, that's not good results. That's not what, what you want to look for. And so I do think that there is a concern here about the sustainability of this approach. And so you do have, I think, a slowdown in finance coming from China, looking at smaller projects, looking at less of this big uh, infrastructure projects. And part of that's due to COVID-19. You know, you don't need to build an airport at this time, right? You, you know, train systems, you know, traditional infrastructure, which is not only expensive, but takes a lot of time to build that kind of stuff at this moment really not that attractive. And so when you look at some of these things, and like you think about the SGR railway in Kenya, which has been said that Port Mombasa is backing it up, if China were to take over control of these things, 
then it would have all the problems that equity shareholders and owners have, right? It would have local worker disputes. It would have to, you know, engage in in in, in a level of the of, of fingers in the pie that I'm not sure it really wants. And so this idea of debt equity swaps, which have been happening to some degree at this time, I think that they're not necessarily going to be helpful for China over the long term. That holding a bunch, you know, equity positions in traditional infrastructure is not necessarily a wise economic decision. That better perhaps to even to, to, to hold the loans and to recalibrate the terms of the loans in perpetuity rather than to take equity stakes. But the the opacity of the loans has gotten a lot of dander up and a lot of concerns, especially among African friends. And I think that the best way to perceive of this as a kind of anti-Chinese resistance narratives, which have been developing in the continent, which then piggyback on the the pre-existing anti-colonial resistance narratives. And so when you've got China engaged in behavior that may not be the same, but has similarities, then people begin to draw conclusions and make associations. And China itself had walked around the continent, I thought, for too long, trying to say, well, we're not as bad as X, so we are okay. But you know, I don't think that we should judge China's record based on the record of the Portuguese, based on the record of the Belgians or the French or the British. That's a low bar. In fact, that bar is not a bar I'd like to compare myself to. So, you know, it seems that China has, I think, overplayed that point by saying, well, we're not as bad as. You know, the point is not, are you as bad as others? It's what role does Africa play in China's larger strategic vision for its role in the world? And what implications does that have for the relationship? And I think that that is something that is just now being unpacked by African actors. They're beginning, I think, to understand not only their position in terms of China's bilateral, but also in terms of China-Africa relations, and then the China-Africa relationship in terms of China's larger set of relationships around the world and its multipolarity in efforts to democratize international relations. So, Josh, as we head to the end of the conversation, I thought I might ask you a few sort of really quick questions that in quick succession. And and I don't know that they long, they require sort of elaborate answers, but one of them is, what are the sort of areas of China-Africa relations that maybe are under-researched? And I, I, let me just give you one example of one that I, I perceive as maybe under-researched. This is one aspect of China's presence in Africa that I think gets not very little attention is it's what you might call informal presence through immigration of thousands of laborers, merchants, artisanal mining groups, and some, you know, some of which, you know, I, I, you mentioned Ghana as an area you might be looking at. You sort of see in Ghana a large settlements of Chinese workers in uh, doing artisanal mining. And while they they first appear as independent wildcat miners, it just interestingly they quickly secure significant financing to purchase expensive heavy machinery, begin expropriating land often illegally from African farmers, bulldozing tropical forests and streams in search of gold and other minerals, which are quickly then sold into Chinese firms that are set up in the capital cities. And I guess I'm sort of curious whether there's any research going on in terms of that sort of informality and its relationship to sort of the more top-down architectural structure of, of the Chinese presence going forward. And are there any other topics like that? I give that one as just exa- one an example. If you were to sort of just do a hit list of where do you think you know we should be focusing in terms of research, in terms of Chinese presence in the Belt and Road Initiative in the future, on a more disaggregated level, where should we be focusing? Wow, all right. You know, that's, 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 that's a toughie because you're asking the hard question, which is what don't we know and what, what should we know, 
right? And and that's always that's always a tough question for researchers to think about. It's kind of easy for us to understand what we see, or to at least know we should study what we see. What's emerging? A very important question. So, why, so why don't I table that one for the moment, and then start with the first part, which is the kind of on the ground. I wouldn't say unofficial, but kind of not lack of transparent. Many, many millions of of Chinese people on the continent. Maybe an anecdote is helpful here. When I flew into Ghana from Ethiopia, there was a group of Chinese guys sitting next to me, and I asked them. I said, "Oh, you guys are going to Ghana? Are you going on vacation?" They said, "No, we're gold miners." I said, "Oh, you're you're gold miners?" And they said, "Well, can, would you, because you speak Chinese, help us to fill out our visa, our arrival forms, which are all in English in Ghana?" And so I did, and I noticed that they were all flying in on kind of one month tourist visas. But when I asked them how long they would stay, they said a few months. They weren't necessarily even clear themselves, and of course, they were picked up at the airport by you know Ghanaian who thanked me for making sure they got there safely, and then then uh, put them on a minibus and took them off. And so it's just this kind of lack of transparency that I think you're referring to. And the heart of this is one of those known unknowns, right? We don't know to the extent this is going on, but what we do know is this. When you go to a place like Ghana, and, and, and when we were there in 2018, everybody from the waiting, from the staff at our hotel to the, the driver to the high level officials that we interviewed, all of them were aware of this wildcat mining and they were aware of the problems and the environmental degradation it was causing, and they, they, they expressed concern about it. But yet it still goes on. And so I think that what you're talking about here under the surface is something that people often express to Ambassador Shin and I in hushed tones, which is their concern about elite capture on the continent. They're concerned that deals are opaque and that behavior goes on that is detrimental without proper scrutiny. And I think that is in that happens perhaps more in places where you have less civil society and less free media. And so it's 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 a problem. And, and also there's an issue of how much connectivity is this between the actions of the Chinese state? And all of these are kind of known un- unknown issues. Sorry, Ray, what was the second part again that I tabled? Ray? I think it was more about just sort of, is there, are, are there some other topics beyond that sort of immigration? Oh, yeah. Topic? yeah, future topics to, to look at. Okay. So, I mean, it won't surprise you that I would say, look at the party to party relationship. China's relations, the Communist Party of China's relations with African political parties have been expanding. Look at the relationship between Chinese official state media and African media sources. I think this is really important emerging topics. The issue of the debt issue and and where it goes from here, I think is really important because a lot of folks got got kind of caught swimming without their trunks on when the COVID-19 happened. And I think how China deals with this is going to be very instructive for us to understand the kind of dominant major power it's going to be and its relations with African states going forward. And for, and, and for that matter, the international development community going forward. So I think that we need to follow the issue of debt but not only how China deals with existing debt, but how it deals with exist future finance arrangements. Are those finance arrangements anywhere near the magnitude they were? And do they take on the same kind of debt over equity or equity? You know, what's the distribution of debt and equity within them? You know, have China's due diligence practices improved? And is there as much political 
uh, pressure coming from the top to make sure that these projects go forward. So more in a comparative context, looking at the past and then the present and, and looking at the two in comparative context. And then the final issue, and this is one where increasing debate is occurring, and that is one of African agency and how much African governments actually control the relationship they have with China. And, and we should distinguish African agency, which is, I would say, something that happens you know, at the government level where people are doing something in the interest of their nation or their, their government, with individual agency, where you have an African cutting a side deal, which may be actually undermining the government, but helping themselves. And I think that this is an important distinction because not every time an African person asks for something and gets it is African agency in play. It may well be just individual agency superseding an actual pan-African agency or a national agency. And so this is a discussion that's underway right now about people who look at this issue as we see the growth of as Africa and China's asymmetry continues to grow is how much and how do African nations gain agency within their relations with the PRC? You know, I think that last point is really, really important. And I, I wanted maybe to, as we wrap up, maybe focus a little bit more on this question of how Africans are receiving this. In other words, agency, I think, is a, is a really nice way of framing it. But is there any way of sort of assessing general sentiment within Africa about whether this presence is welcomed or resisted? I mean, your example of Everyone knowing about the environmental degradation in Ghana is, is something I, I encountered as well, and I actually I saw some visible, you know, saw it visibly, but heard, you heard about it, and, and it was sort of in the air. And now I think you're starting to see from African researchers, you know, some of them, a, a something of a critique coming out on some of the issues you just you just mentioned. But how, how, do you th- you see in Africa itself kind of an evolving sort of thought process in, in the in the public imagination or in the media about about this presence and whether it's working or not for Africa? Well. We do. And I was in Africa about a year ago, and and I was talking to an expert on these issues, and she said to me, quote, we have seen the true face of China. And that was was pretty shocking to me, because that's not a positive statement, right? It it suggests that not only is that face a kind of uh, Dr. Jekyll or a Mr. Hyde face, but it's also something that's been hidden away and not necessarily revealed. And now it is revealed. And so I thought that was a very telling statement. But let me put it this way. I am ill-suited to speak on behalf of Africans. But what I will do is this. I want to do a shameless promotion because on uh, the 10th of November, I will be interviewing three of the top African experts on China's uh, role in development in Africa. Jude Moore, the former Minister of Public Works of Liberia, Ellis Adams, my new colleague here at Notre Dame, an assistant professor from Ghana who works specifically on development and the environment. And he'll be excellent person to, to, to speak to this Ghana issue and gold mining issue. And then Iman Farhai who, from Egypt, who is a uh, finishing up her PhD at the University of Cairo in political science and economics, working on China. And uh, we're hoping we'll be a postdoc fellow here at Notre Dame once things clear up with COVID. And so those um, three African voices, I think are, are going to be a great opportunity for us to get to the bottom of the question you asked, Ray. And so to find out from at least these uh, three knowledgeable experts, the trajectory of what's going on. However, the only thing I can say, and this is just an observation, is that there have been increasing concerns in Kenya, Nigeria, Ethiopia, South Africa, that I have seen uh, either online or heard personally about China's role, the economic role in development in those countries. 
But that being said, these countries uh, continue to engage China on a regular basis. And so it's hard to say whether or not these kinds of grumblings and gripes, which may or may not come from official sources or from civil society, what impact they may actually have on the bilateral relationship. And so I'm really looking forward to this upcoming event to try to get to the bottom of some of these questions. Well, Josh, that was great. And maybe I just might, might want to ask, you know, are there any other events that might also be coming up that we might want to just alert listeners to that we should be conscious of that you're going to be a part of and where this conversation might be continued, particularly around your upcoming, you know, your, your book releases? Yeah, so I, there is a, a book release, you know, it's in Chinese, however, that the Liu Institute at Notre Dame is going to be doing with myself, uh, Minier, who is a professor at Boston University, and Professor Wang Guanyong at Shanghai uh, International Studies University, who translated the book. And so that's a joint event between us here at Notre Dame and Shanghai International Studies University. Really looking forward to it. However, it's going to be in Chinese. And so um, I'm not sure how many of the listeners here can join, but if any of y'all are are Chinese uh, speakers, we would love to have you. Great. And and we'll probably post this when we we post the recording of this podcast. So uh, for anybody who's interested, they can look to the website to find that. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to really thank you profusely, Josh, for that really excellent discussion. I'm, I'm sure, I have no doubt, in fact, that our listeners have learned a lot about the state of China-Africa relations, particularly around sort of the development side of things. Uh, I certainly have. And so, I, Josh, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Eisenman's work, I would recommend his book, which was mentioned at the beginning, China and Africa, A Century of Engagement which has also just been released in Chinese by Chinese University Hong Kong Press. I would also note that this is the only uncensored book on China-Africa relations ever published in the PRC. So I think that's really an unprecedented event that uh, probably underlines the importance of the the book and the importance to to read it as as further follow-up to this conversation. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, visit Pulte, P-U-L-T-E dot N-D edu backslash global pathways podcast or stream or subscribe through your favorite podcast platform thank you for listening to this episode of the global pathways podcast i'm ray offenheiser and i'll see you next time additional support for the global pathways podcast with ray offenheiser comes from the university of notre dame's keel school of global affairs home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu globalaffairs global affairs.